We are in the middle of a series of messages uh, from the book of Nehemiah. And uh, I'm sure many of you know that the events that are recorded in Nehemiah are historical events. You know, they have a historical context. In fact, uh, what we read about there occurred in the year 445 BC. And that was when the Persians were the dominant world power at the time. And the Bible says that Nehemiah was a high-ranking official uh, in the court of the king Artaxerxes I. He was the Persian king at the time. We've got a picture here of King Artaxerxes I. There's a a kind of a, a relief mural of him that's found on his tomb. You can go and visit his tomb today. Uh, right in the middle of Iran, okay, if you want to go and see him there. Uh, That's where uh, the Persian Empire was based uh, two and a half thousand years ago. Nehemiah was one of the exiled Jews whose forefathers had been displaced when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem in 587 BC. Uh, the, the, The city was burned to the ground and it had lain in ruins for many years, But under the new Persian regime, the Jews were given permission to return to their land and to begin rebuilding. They began by rebuilding the temple. Uh, The Bible tells us it was their unfaithfulness to God that got them into trouble in the first place. But God had said that if they returned to him, he would bring them back to their land and he would bless them again. So building the house of God was their first priority. And then it was to be the rest of the city. But by Nehemiah's day, which was several decades later, the rebuilding work had ceased. The wall of Jerusalem, which was part of the city, surrounding the city with all of its gates, was still ruined. And when Nehemiah heard this news and how they were uh, being ridiculed by the other nations, he heard from afar... And uh, where he was in Persia, and he wept. Uh, He was devastated, Uh, not just because his people were vulnerable to their enemies, but because God's name was at stake. That's what we heard last time. And so he prayed, and he felt God call him to be the one to go to Jerusalem and to lead his people to finish the job. So Nehemiah went on that journey to Jerusalem, gathered all the people, the priests, the officials, the nobles, it says, all the uh, Jewish people together. He told them how God's hand was upon him, how God was going to uh, prosper them to do this work, and invited them to join him in this building project. And they all responded with a resounding, yes, let us arise and rebuild. And that's what they said. Okay, that's where we've come to. That's Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. Now, if you were to jump ahead in the story, a few chapters, and you get to chapter 6, you read that against all the odds, the work was actually completed in only 52 days. Right? That's just short of two months. And if you're a builder, you'll know that's nothing short of miraculous, especially considering that it was in the face of intense opposition. Uh, Even their enemies and the surrounding nations knew that this building work was not 
normal. 52 days, that was not normal. Uh, they knew there was something supernatural about this. And it says they were afraid. So we read in Nehemiah 6 verse 16, it says, For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So this wasn't just human effort. This didn't happen just through sheer hard work or human ingenuity. This was the hand of God. And isn't that what we want people to say about the church today? That there would be something unexplainable, something undeniable about our lives and about our works. You know, whether it's the miracle of a healing or the miracle of a transformed life, so people would say, what happened to them? I knew that person before they became a Christian. They're totally different. It's like night and day. They've changed for the better. How is that possible? Or how is it possible that a group of people from such different backgrounds, with such different interests, could possibly love one another in the way that they do? Or how is it possible that they can forgive and they can bless those who have wronged them and hurt them? Or how, why is it that they are able to so sacrificially give of their time and money to bless other people, to serve other people around them? That is not normal. How did this happen? You see, that they would be astonished, that they would be astounded as they were of the early church, that they would say, it can only be the hand of God. Right? May God make that so in our day. Amen? In fact, why don't we just pray for that right now? Let's just pray for that. Lord, Lord, I pray, will you revive your church here in America? Lord, we know in many other parts of the world there are amazing things happening in your church that are just unexplainable and undeniable. Lord, where your hand is upon them, oh God, would you do it again here, Lord? Will you do it in our day, in our nation? I pray, will you revive your church, Lord? Will you revive us, Lord? Change us, Lord, to be the people you've called us to be, Lord. To be like you, Jesus. Oh, God, will you come, Lord? Build your church, I pray, Lord, in this nation that would represent you in these days. Oh, God, that your name is at stake. So we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Even as we come to your word now, speak to us. Change us, we ask, for your glory. Amen. Amen. Now, of course, in Nehemiah's day, it wasn't the hand of God that physically put brick on brick. Uh, the miracle happened as God worked through a ragtag group of people with very different interests and backgrounds. So I just want to draw your attention now uh, to those people. That's what I want to look at this morning from Nehemiah chapter 3. Because it's an amazing collection of people who worked um, on the wall there. And they're all listed there in Nehemiah 3. That's what the chapter's all about. It just lists all the different people who worked on the wall. And it takes you on this journey, uh, anti-clockwise, around the wall of Jerusalem and all the various gates, starting and ending with the sheep gates, it says. And um, we're not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to give you a few verses just to give you a taste of what was going on there. So let's start from verse 1. It says, Then 
Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gates. That's where it started. Right? So the clergy, as it were, were setting the example here, as they should. And they're the shepherds, and so it seems appropriate to me that they should start with the sheep gate. Um, and then it says others were there alongside them. There were the men of Jericho, it says, the Jerichoites, and there were the Gibeonites. They're all working on the wall, these different clans together. Verse 8, it says, Next to them, Aziel, the son of Hahiah, goldsmiths. So Hahiah and son, they were goldsmiths in the city. And next to him was Hananiah, one of the perfumers who repaired. And so they were together. They're restoring the wall as far as the broad wall. So here you've got a goldsmith, right? Hot, sweaty trade, working alongside a guy who makes perfume, right? I mean, it couldn't be more different or diverse, but they're working together on the wall. Verse 12, it says next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. So here's one of the city governors who's down in the trenches working alongside the tradesmen. You see, God calls people from different social economic backgrounds. You've got blue collar and white collar. They're working together, co-laboring. Even the governor's daughters are there. Right? There's no room here for princess attitudes. Right? Everyone is needed to work on the wall for God's glory. Right? Everyone's got a part to play, including young and old, working together. So what we see here is God's work involves people from different vocations, different backgrounds, different generations. Verse 14, then we see Malkajah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of beth Hakarem. He repaired the dung gate. And yes, that's exactly what you imagine it to be. Right? That's, that was the gates they used to carry all the, you know, all the dung out of the city, all the refuse to the refuse pits outside the city walls. And here we have another ruler, a governor, who is taking the responsibility to repair the dung gates because someone has to, right? No one is above everyone else. Uh, everyone's making sacrifices for the good of the community and for the glory of God. Right? That's just a snapshot of what was going on there in this rebuilding work on the wall. Now, what's that got to do with us? How is this relevant to us here today? Well, what we see here is a picture of the church. All right, let me explain why. That's what all this is pointing to. You see, even after Jerusalem was rebuilt, it never really recaptured the, the, the glory of its former days, right? It, it never really fulfilled the prophecies. For example, um, uh, Haggai in chapter 2 uh, says that the glory of this new temple was going to be even greater than the glory of the former temple. Well, it never really achieved that. Uh, Isaiah 62, if you were to read uh, that chapter, it talks there about reestablishing Jerusalem as the joy of the whole earth, uh, where her righteousness would be put on display before the nations. Salvation would come from her, that she would no longer be called desolate and forsaken, but that she would be called married. God would be like her bridegroom rejoicing over 
uh, her as a bride. That's what it says there in Isaiah 62. But it never really happened. It was an anticlimax. The spiritual life of the nation was largely unchanged. Even with all the religious and social reforms that took place, it, it just didn't really deal with the heart. See, God's people needed a new heart. What's more, Zechariah had prophesied early on in the building work that Jerusalem would be a city without walls. Well, what they, what they do in building walls then? Right? He says it's going to be a city without walls. You can read that, Zechariah 2.4. He says that God's presence would surround them. It would be like a wall of fire around them. And that God's presence would be in their very midst. And that other nations would come to them and come and join with them there. So what was that all about then? Well, it was all pointing to the truth that one greater than Nehemiah was needed. That even though the rebuilding work was a miracle, an even greater miracle was required. Right? Not to transform broken walls and gates, but to transform broken hearts and broken lives. To transform a broken world. And so God, in keeping with his promises to Israel, he gave them a son, a faithful son called Jesus. And Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, he made a way for all of those prophecies to be fulfilled so that people from all nations, all backgrounds, all generations could come to God and receive clean, new hearts as his own spirit came to live in them. And so God's presence would no longer dwell in a physical city and in a temple made with stone, but would now be present in the midst of his people. Right? That's why the New Testament writers seem to have no problem applying Old Testament prophecies to the church, like these ones in Isaiah and Zechariah, that the church was to become the joy of the whole earth, that the church was to become the bride of God, the bride of Christ, the Bible says, that the church was to become the new Jerusalem made up of the Jewish people and people from all the other nations as well. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2.22, he says this, he says, in him, in Christ, you too, talking about all of us, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Right? We are all now the house of God. We are the temple of God. And it's a house that's made of living stones. The people in Nehemiah's day, they were building with blocks of stone. They were building brick on brick. But actually, God's house today is being built with living stones, with people. It's life on life. That's why Peter says this. In 1 Peter 2, he says, As you come to him, come to Jesus, who is the living stone, who was rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, so you also, like living stones, are being built into this spiritual house. Okay, that's what the church is. It's a community of people who are being built together in Christ, who, as Peter goes on to say, he is the cornerstone. 
He's the foundation stone of the house. Okay, we're all built on him, joined to him. But he's also the builder, right? See, who's building these living stones together into this dwelling place for God? Jesus is. Can you see? He's the greater Nehemiah who's overseeing this extraordinary supernatural building project. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Right? There is no opposition in hell or on earth that can prevent the church of Jesus Christ from coming forth and growing all across the world as Jesus adds stone upon stone upon stone, priests and perfumers, right, goldsmiths and governors, people from every nation, every race, every tribe, every tongue, including you and I, everyone here who has been joined to him. Which is why the New Jerusalem is a far, far greater miracle than the one that Nehemiah helped to rebuild from the rubble. Because you see, there we all were, lying there in the rubble of life, right? Broken stones, every one of us, ruined, burned by the enemy, no longer serving any good purpose, destined for death. And yet Jesus, like Nehemiah, saw us from afar, and he wept over us. And he said to his father, send me. And he came and he gave his life to redeem us. Right? Listen, if you have faith in Jesus Christ today, it was because Jesus came to you. It's because Jesus took hold of you and he cleansed you and he repaired you to make you like new. Right? You may not feel like that sitting here this morning, but let me tell you, you are a miracle of his grace. You are a miracle of grace. Right? You've been saved and added a living stone in his glorious, magnificent house that will never, ever pass away and which will one day fill the whole earth with God's glory. Right? Do you hear an amen? This is an amazing truth. This is an amazing revelation uh, that we have here. This is worth getting excited about, right? What we are a part of here. So what does that mean then for our lives? What does that mean for us? Well, there's two things I believe we should be doing in response to this revelation, okay? Because as in Nehemiah's day, we are all involved in this miracle, right? We all have a purpose. We all have a part to play. Jesus builds his church as his people with all their different gifts and interests and vocations. They come together in faith and say, let's rise up and build, so firstly then, the first thing that we need to recognize is that every one of us here who professes faith in Christ has a role to play both in the church and in society, both generally and specifically. All right? Let me explain. So in the church, there are certain things that we see in Scripture that every one of us here is generally called to do. Like, for example, gathering regularly. All right? That's what we see in Scripture. Gathering to worship, gathering to receive teaching, gathering to pray and to receive the sacraments and so on. Gathering regularly, giving generously. That's what we also see in the Bible, in the early church, right? Gathering regularly, giving generously, loving wholeheartedly, serving sacrificially, 
even if it means working on the dung gate, right? Because someone has to, right? That's what it means to be part of the church. That's why we encourage all our members to commit to those things, gathering, giving, loving, serving. And it needs every one of us to play our part, just like every brick is needed in supporting a building. So every living stone is needed to support the ministry of Christ's church. Right? That's what enables the church to grow and to be a gospel witness. Not just here on the seacoast, but in Brooklyn, in Turkey, in Oman, right? in Nepal, in India, and so on. Right? All the different places where we're sending people and where we're involved. Right? That's what enables that to happen. It's when we're faithful in these things that God is able then to do the miraculous. Right? So when we give him what we have, our five loaves and our two fishes, then Jesus takes that, blesses that, and multiplies that to feed the world. Right? That's how we're all involved in this miracle. It's as we gather, as we give, as we love, and as we serve. It's what we're all generally called to do. Right? But we're also, uh, there's a general calling on our lives in society as well. Because we're all called to be salt and light through the way that we live our lives. So, for example, in the way that we love our spouses or our families or those around us. Okay? The way we conduct ourselves, uh, our speech, our behavior and so on at, at work or at college. Uh, we're called to be Christ's ambassadors, his representatives. Right? We are his witnesses. These are things that every one of us is called to do uh, if we profess faith in Jesus. All right? So uh, there, are specific, there are the general things that we're called to do in the church and society, but then there are also specific ways in which we may be called to serve God with the different gifts and the passions that he's given to each one of us. So, for example, some here may have gifts of music or teaching. Others may have gifts of counseling. Uh, or hospitality. There are gifts of encouragement here, uh, gifts of leadership. Some are gifted at administration, others with practical skills. It might be cooking or carpentry. It might be bookkeeping or baking, you know. Uh, some people uh, love to serve the children. Others love to pray. We've got a whole load of people using their gifts right now to build community through our 30 or so small groups uh, in the church. And there are many others who are passionate about helping those in recovery and helping to repair broken lives. All of these gifts and many, many more help to build up the church for the glory of Christ. And uh, just to say, we want to see, encourage everyone here to use their gifts to be doing things that they're passionate about for the glory of Christ. So let's be encouraging one another, right, where we see those gifts uh, to be able to use them, uh, to build up the church. But of course, you know, there's not always the opportunity to use those gifts in the church, is there? And what's more, for some people, they're called to focus them more on society um, around us. So let me give you an example. Um, she won't thank me for this, but let me take my wife Emma as an example, all right? Um, Emma serves generally in the church. She serves sacrificially 
like many people here do. In fact, I worked out she's been regularly serving in the children's work for 33 years now, uh, pretty much without a break. Uh, I think that deserves a medal. But, uh, but I know that there are many... Yeah, well, she's not here. She's in children's work, right? But, uh, um, but uh, there are many others here. It's not just her. There are many others here I know who have served faithfully in various areas of the church for years now. God bless all of you, all right? Thank God for you. You are like the buttresses that hold up the wall, right? But serving with the children, important though that is, isn't necessarily what makes Emma come alive, right? Um, much as she loves children, it's not the thing that she's necessarily passionate about. As many of you know, she's an artist and she's building a good reputation in society. That's where she feels called. She feels called to serve uh, Christ in the art world for the glory of God. And you see, you know, whether it's in the church or whether it's in society, as many of you know, one is not more important than the other in the kingdom of God because there is no sacred secular divide. All right? Both are important because the whole earth belongs to the Lord and one day he's going to come and fill it all with his glory. Okay? If you remember the passage that we read uh, from uh, Nehemiah 3, some people were working on the wall, other people were working on the gates. In fact, there were 10 gates there that are mentioned in Nehemiah uh, that had to be repaired. And I was just thinking how gates are necessary for people to go outside of the city as well as to let people into the city. And so in the same way, there are those who are called to serve Christ outside of the church, maybe in different sectors of society, you know, like the arts, or it might be in education, or in the military, or in politics. Uh, it might be in working with the poor and disadvantaged, or it might be starting a business to provide employment, uh, or maybe working with a nonprofit or fostering and adopting children. There are a myriad of things that God may put on our hearts to do, ways in which we can serve him. And when we do those things for his glory, we're not just being a witness, we're actually helping to strengthen the very fabric of society. Right? We're bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. And often that then becomes a gateway through which people uh, from many different walks of life may come into the church. So, whether you're working on the walls or on the gates, right, both are needed. Both are important. Amen? That's the first thing. And we all have a role to play in that, in that building work, generally and specifically uh, in the church and in society. But as I mentioned earlier, we are also, all of us, living stones that Christ is building together. And so the second thing that I want to finish with now is to recognize there are many, many other people who Christ is wanting to build into this church who at the moment are still lying out there in the rubble of life. People who may be broken and hurting. People who may appear a bit rough around the edges or maybe might seem unlikely candidates but who Christ is wanting to redeem and turn into living stones. And again, we all have a part to play. Because you know, while God might be the one who saves and adds, he wants to use us in that miracle. 
as we reach out to people and serve them and befriend them and pray for them, praying for those who are not yet with us. But here's the thing. Those people might be very different to you and I. Right? And especially um, when you consider we live in the most unchurched parts of the United States. It means that if we're going to grow through living stones being redeemed and added to us from our neighborhoods or from our colleges, uh, our workplaces and so on, it means building a relationship with people who may have very different views to you. Different beliefs, different politics, different lifestyle, different generation, different ways of thinking, different ways of doing things. Goldsmiths and perfumers, fathers and daughters and so on. And so how we relate to them is very important and especially in a society where there is so much hostility and polarization around certain viewpoints. So therefore, what's important, and this is the big idea, if you've heard nothing else this morning, go away with this, right? This is the big idea, right? What's important is not to get people to see things the way that you do, but to get them to see Jesus. The goal is not that they may agree with your views, but that if they may come to know Jesus, they might love Jesus. Emma and I are in a community group, and we love our community group. There's usually about eight of us, same people who meet regularly. Uh, we meet three times a week for an hour uh, at a time. Uh, we meet at seven o'clock in the morning at a coffee shop uh, downtown Portsmouth. Uh, same group of people from all walks of life who we've been meeting all summer. And uh, some are civil engineers, and there's a civil engineer, a nurse, there's a writer, uh, a dentist, uh, there's uh, some retirees, there's some well-traveled people, there's some hardened mainers, and then Emma and I are the only Christians uh, in the group. We talk about all kinds of things together. We talk about work, family, news, uh, environment, uh, politics, church, Jesus, you know, we don't, um, Emma and I don't try and impose our views on them. We, we're interested in hearing what their views are. Uh, we want to understand their viewpoints. Um, if we're asked, we'll offer uh, our opinion. And if we have the opportunity, then we'll talk about the church here and about Jesus, which we've uh, done. And we're praying for them. They're our friends. When Emma had a solo art show recently, they all came along, uh, along with the owners of the cafe. Uh, and in a few weeks, just before Thanksgiving, they're all coming to our house. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see some come here to our church at some point. And I'm hopeful it will be a positive experience. Russell Moore, in his book Onward, tells a story about someone's first experience in a church. Uh, this was a church that he was pastoring at the time. And he describes an incident that took place. Maybe it was at the beginning of the meeting. Uh, or maybe it was during the kind of meet and greet time like we have before the sermon. But he says that an 11-year-old boy in his church introduced him to his friend, uh, whose name was Jared. Uh, Jared was on the same soccer team as this 11-year-old boy. Never been to church before in his life. And after a few minutes of talking... Uh, Moore says that Jared told him that his dad had left home and he didn't know what he and his family were going to do. 
and he asked whether maybe they could pray that God would put his mum and dad back together again. And so Moore prayed for them, prayed for this boy and his family. This is what he said. He says, he says I prayed with him, and he turned to go back to his seat. He was wearing a shirt celebrating the inauguration of a president who was unpopular with most of the people in this mostly white, blue-collar congregation. As I watched the young man walk down his first ever church aisle to hear the gospel, perhaps for the first time, a middle-aged man walked past him and huffed, we need to get you a better shirt. Moore says, I was incredulous. I wanted to yell. He's lost. He's wounded. He's hurting. He doesn't know Christ and you're worried about his shirt? But then he says, I wondered how many times I've done the same thing. It's easy, isn't it, to judge? So easy to major on the minors and to pick fights when there's a far, far greater battle to be won. So glad that didn't happen to me when I attended church for the first time. As a 20-year-old art student, from a messed up, broken home. A punk, all dressed in black, earrings in both ears, studying Zen Buddhism, practicing tarot cards. Never been to church in my life. Didn't know a thing about Christianity. I'm sure I said a few things that they didn't agree with. But all they showed me was love and acceptance. It, it meant... I ended up giving up martial arts on a Sunday morning so I could go to church regularly. I joined a community group. They were very patient and encouraging. And so I feel like, I felt like I belonged even before I came to believe. And as I came to believe, Jesus began to change my thinking and shape my life. You know what? It still is. So you see, the goal is not to get people to agree with our views, but for them to come to know Jesus. And as they follow Jesus, some of their views and some of their thinking may change. Their lifestyle may well begin to change, but it still doesn't mean that they'll become like you and me, because we've still got to change as well. The goal is we all increasingly become like Jesus. And we all have a ways to go. So our job is not to try and change people, but to point them to Jesus, help them to know Jesus and to follow Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who saves and adds. He's building his church. And he'll do it by transforming the most unlikely candidates into living stones. Whether it's a murdering Pharisee like Paul of Tarsus, or an intellectual atheist like C.S. Lewis, right? He's redeeming people from all cultures, all generations, all walks of life, whether it's Jerichoites and Gibeonites, uh, fathers and daughters, perfumers and goldsmiths, or people like you and me. And he's calling us all, every one of us here, to play our part in this great miracle, right? So let us all rise up and build. Amen?